Hi guys, you're listening to A History of Mental Illness. I'm here today with my brother subbing in as a guest interviewer, Johnny Alsop. Howdy. And then we're here today super excited um, with Mike Weaver, the executive director of the International Association of Peer Supporters. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you. We have been excited for this. So um, today we're going to kind of be talking about Mike's story, um, as well as what the International Association of Peer Supporters is and how it's integral to recovery in mental health. So I guess we'll go ahead and get started and just have you share your story and your history with um, mental health. Okay, well, I... um you know, I grew up in a family of 14 kids. Uh, my, my father was a minister. My mother was a housewife. All the, at 59, she went back and got her degree, which was pretty impressive. But it is. Um, and a pretty, uh, you know, with a bunch of kids, you always had something to do. We were always uh, entertained, and we didn't have a TV, so we read a lot of books, and we did a lot of playing outside. Um, my father disappeared a couple of times when I was growing up for a week. I thought he just went down to Philadelphia to visit family, but evidently there was more to it than that. But um, I went to a Christian school, and I would say, you know, sometimes when you think about mental illness, there is a biological connection. Some people want to say that that is not true, mm-hmm. um, but pretty much it seemed to be fairly evident. But there's certainly something to be said for the environment that you grow up, grow up in affects how you think and how you feel. And I would say, you know, my father was, was a very strong disciplinarian, and he, I would say, my father was a good speaker, but he tended to err on the side of always talking about how sinful we were and um, rarely talking about... Um, our capabilities and our opportunities mm-hmm. and um, that kind of thing. So it was kind of like, you know, you look at a baby, and, you, know, you see the face of God, yeah, so beautiful and cute. So I and, and, and high school was like that, same kind of high school, got the same message. Uh, then I went to a Christian college in San Diego. Uh, my friend Harvey from Maine, we both went out there in a VW Bug, um, <laughs> 3,300 miles, and oh my uh, gosh. we had to go 52 miles an hour because the engine was shot. Um, <laughs> oh so we got out to California, and uh, was in a, I thought the Christian college was actually a, kind of a, a little bit of a relief from home, but eventually it kind of turned in more of that same restrictive environment, and um, so... I met I met the woman that was going to become my wife, and um, you know I was going to I was going to be a minister because my father wanted us all to be ministers or ministers' wives or missionaries or whatever. And the funny thing is, I never ever um, considered any other occupation. Mm-hmm. That's how strong my dad's influence was on on the kids. So. <clears throat> um, but after I graduated and I, I spent like a year um, up in Northern California starting uh, doing some work in, in, in health clubs, fitness clubs, being really involved in um, supplements and stuff like that. 
um, I returned to San Diego and got my uh, credential to teach. Okay. I had to go back to work, uh, school for a while. And, and my, my two children, eventually my ex-wife and I broke up and that was like foreboding in my family. Uh, my, my dad told me when I was considered that he was going to disfellowship me. That was, that's the spiritual word. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I, I, we finally did that. And, um, and then I, I, I think probably during that marriage, there were some um, episodes of depression, but had never been diagnosed. And I didn't know my father mm-hmm. had bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Or back then they called it manic depressive disorder. And he had, he had been diagnosed with that during the last year of World War II. Oh, wow. By the military. So, but about, uh, so I was in my teaching career, and I, I don't know if it was somewhere around, I, I need to go back and look at my, my, my books that I kept every year. Mm-hmm. Um, I could probably find out what year it was, but it's either 86, I think it was 86, where I was seeing a, a, a therapist, and he he says to me, he goes, um, "Do you think you got some sort of biological problem?" I said, "What are you talking about?" He goes, "I think maybe I ought to take medication." I said, "I don't even." This is what I was really into: health food, no sugar, no crappy food, mm-hmm. and I said, "I don't even take aspirin. Right. I, don't, I don't take anything." <laughs> uh, but I did go to a, a general practitioner, and he gave me this drug called Ascendin, which is not a very effective antidepressant. Um, and then, you know, eventually, um, you know, I was teaching, and then in the summertime, uh, teaching is very stressful. My first year of teaching was extremely stressful. Um, I was in a low-performing school, I think the second to the worst in the entire, like 106 out of 107 in, in the district. Oh, wow. And, uh, Every day I felt like quitting until about April when I started getting my handle on things. But uh, like in the summertime, you're not very, my time was not very well uh, regulated. I didn't mm-hmm. have any schedule. And I ended up in a hospital for the first time. And it was really based on um, a mania where I was kind of like out of control. And, but at the same time, I was suicidal. So they call that mixed mood, which is which is kind of a dangerous situation because you have the energy to do it. Right, and, um, right. I went to, I, I, I went to this, um, I won't give a name, but I went to this place in, 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 in San Diego and uh, my first experience with a mental hospital was not a good one. Um, you know, you, you go to your room, you get in there and it's about 10 o'clock at night before you go to your room. Um, Somehow they haven't got the doctor's orders yet, so they're not, you don't get any sleep medication, so you just stay up all night. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was supposed to be on suicide watch while I was kind of like in the hallway and I was doing push-ups. Mm-hmm. I was young, you know, push-ups all night. And um, next morning they come in and I said, how come you guys didn't do a suicide checks last night? And they go, we did. I said, no, you didn't, because I said, I was out there in this hallway the whole time. And I said, I can see four ways that I can kill myself in this room right now. That was the beginning of my history with hospitals that um, I experienced most of the time did not 
I went into a hospital suicidal and I came out feeling pretty much the same way. Mm-hmm. And there's some studies that show that you're actually more likely uh, to commit suicide if you go into a hospital. I don't think hospitals need to be that way, but um, and, and there are peer support specialists in hospitals now, so that's good. So anyway, um, so I started a whole, you know, I had psychi- the same psychiatrist for about seven years, I had the same psychologist. Um, uh, teaching, I, I j- gradually got more and more expert at teaching, and I went finally went to middle school and teacher of the year. Um, but I, I didn't really have a handle on bipolar disorder, so mm-hmm. um, back then you, you couldn't find a book on bipolar disorder in a bookstore. They had real bookstores back then. <laughs> Not the Kindle. <laughs> yeah, and you couldn't you couldn't find anything on it. Um, it had nothing about recovery and. Peer sport was not even started yet. So, um, so I just uh, one year. My sister died in '93. She was like the one that raised me, Mary, second oldest. And then um, I was on all kind. Of, I was on like eight, eight or twelve committees. And uh, I went to my principal, and I did realize that I needed to get off some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And she agreed. She, she goes, "Well, you can get off this, 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 but you can't get off this, 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 this." And um, and then I, um, I, I somehow my health plan changed to a new psychiatrist that I didn't trust. He he, he was really full blood German, and I mean he spoke with a German accent. And <laughs> he goes, "I want you to take Prozac." And I said, "Well, here's the history of Prozac in my family. Mm-hmm. My my sister Martha's had issues with it, made her way over energized. You know, Steve and someone else. I someone's kicked a window out. Someone did this and that." Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's a really good idea. And he says, well, I'll try it. So 20 milligrams. I come back the next two weeks or a week and eat. I think we need to boost it to 40. And because my ego was low, my, my energy was low, I didn't do my normal advocating for myself. I went with what he said. But what he didn't realize is I was just barely going to school, dealing with, you know, 30-some kids five periods a day. Mm-hmm. And then I would just drive home, and I didn't, I wasn't taking lithium. And if you're taking Prozac, you definitely need to be taking a mood stabilizer. Mm-hmm. Prozac is a very energizing, um, well, it's for me anyway. And so, um, as a result of that, um, I ended up involved in the legal system at age 36 for the first time. I didn't know the difference between a, a misdemeanor and a felony. I'd never been involved with a lot. Nobody in my family had ever been, and right. I find myself uh, in a county jail for like four months, and then um, I finally got out. Um, I was able to get a transfer of my stuff to the East Coast, and I went to Maine, uh, stayed with my friend Harb. Well, I was supposed to teach at a Christian school up there, but when I presented to the whole board, they voted love and two to not me not have me teach. Wow. Um, I thought that was a done deal. But then a friend of mine down in Massachusetts, um, who I'd gone to high school with, he had a school down there and he, so I went down there and I, I finished out the year teaching 
five different subjects and assistant coach baseball and basketball, but um, it was very, it was just a reminder of my growing up. The, the rules were so restrictive. Mm-hmm. Um, I had thought about using a portion of a Stephen King novel in a English class and the principal found out about it. I come in and they asked me, well, you know, Stephen King's evil. I said, no, he's not. I said, he's just, I said, if Stephen King's evil, Edgar Allan Poe's evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, um, you know, he died on the streets of Baltimore, age 40. And I said, I said, he'll be in English books 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I understand not everything's cool, but, um, and, uh, they were telling me all this stuff and, um, I just said, you know, let me just finish out the year, and then I won't, I won't be back. I said, I can't. I said, I'm not here anymore. I'm not at this place in my life anymore, you know. And so, after that, I, I moved back up to Maine, and I, I, I was able to get a job as a crisis counselor. I went, I went to this Greater Bangor Crisis Stabilization place because uh, I had a job, and the lady really cool. She became my boss eventually and she said, nah, Mike, I'd love to get you. You sound like a good guy, but uh, you don't have the qualifications and blah, blah, blah. You had to have a, you know, a license in counseling or social work. So I, I said, okay. So I went down to the state of Maine um, guy that handled, managed all the licensing for, for this and I had an interview with him for an hour, and I walked out with a provisional license. Oh, that's great! <laughs> and so I did that for a couple of years. I did uh, mobile crisis, and I, I think the benefit of that was was me um, really getting used to dealing with all kinds of people. I mean, farmers who were really depressed, people in the city, mm-hmm. people on the coast of Maine. It, it's amazing how many how much poverty is in parts of Maine. Mm-hmm. And people just living these lives of just just really depressed, and so I, I learned a lot of the clinical stuff through that, and I, you know, I had to take a bunch of courses. And um, uh, but then uh, you know I just felt like uh, I needed to be near family, so I talked to my probation officer, and she said, "Well, you can go down to North Carolina." So. Um, you know, in North Carolina, and I was out here helping this missionary tear down the top of this house in the 45 corridor before they built the road, mm-hmm. and we had to move that thing down to York uh, County, and the cost of moving a building is every time you go under one of those lines, then Duke has to raise that thing up, and that's like two grand. And so, oh so we took the top off, put it in a trailer, but while I was there, this woman says, you know, I, you know, there's this Christian school I, I think I'd apply for. It. I said, no, I'm done. With, I'm tired of rejection. I don't want any of that. But she turned it in. And so the school started interviewing me. They had me four interviews. And I thought it was for a third grade position. And finally over here at the Landmark, uh, off of Central, they told me, well, we want you to be our vice principal. Oh. So I, I did that. Um, but while I was there, you know, I was kind of like told by the principal, you know, you don't need to take medications. Oh, gosh. Um, by his stripes you are healed out of Isaiah and uh, all this kind of stuff. And I was just, just kind of <laughs> working on me all, 
year long, you know. Yeah. And I'm basically managing the school because he was involved with the election board that year, and it was election year. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was paid minuscule, but um, I was I enjoyed the job. Um, but toward the end of the year, I, um, I you know I did I stopped taking medication again. Mm -hmm. And I don't think medication is the only thing, but uh, I you know I got involved with this this woman that was. Uh, and so, um, and then the lady from uh, Maine sent me a letter saying, "Why are you in, Why are you in North Carolina?" <laughs> I, said, I said, "You told me I could come to North Carolina. It was just, it was just for a visit." I said, "No." I said, "I've been sending you reports. Uh, you know, I'm vice principal of a school there." Right. So um, anyway. Through several things that happened there, I ended up going back to California. Uh, they told me to go back to California, or you will, you know, we'll bring you back. Oh wow! Uh, I was in the hospital like I was in like four hospitals in a month, and I almost died out north of W. T. Harris in a field. I'd been there like two and a half hours, and they finally found me. Um, so I, I survived that, but I never, I fully intended to be gone that day. And then I had to hop a plane out to California. I had like three days to go to the beach, see some of my friends, eat some tacos, go to In-N-Out Burger. And I, my friend Mike drops me off as the pro, probation officer in San Diego. I think oh, I'm going to finish my probation. It's like, I'm over four years into this probation. It's a five year probation. Mm -hmm. And, um, I go to this probation officer, and this lady goes, well, turn around. These guys snapped the cuffs on me. Oh, my gosh. Um, I went to the county jail for a week. Um, they wouldn't let my friend Mike bring in my medications. I had a light out in my room. My cellmate slept all day. I was going totally nuts. And then I go to court, and my attorney didn't even get a word out. The judge says, you're going to state prison. So I'm in like total shock. How the hell did I get here? You know, I'm going mm -hmm. to state prison. And um, so I did. Uh, I went to Donovan State Prison near the border overlooking Tijuana Airport. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, when you first go to prison, they, they try to get you regimented. So you get like five minutes for breakfast, five lunch, five dinner. And then they had this little room full of paperbacks. They run you in there. You got like three minutes scrapbooks. I never read so many Daniel Steele novels in my life <laughs> because I you just grab them, you know. Yeah, right. But uh, and then I'm out in the yard every day, and I'm just kind of in shock, and just kind of saying to God, "How how did I get here? Holy crap!" But I did realize at that point, I did I did have some personal responsibility thoughts, and that was. Okay, so stuff happened to me. I didn't bring this illness on myself, but I do have to be responsible. So in the future, um, it's not going to be my attorney that's responsible. It's not going to be my psychiatrist, my therapist. It's going to be me to make sure that I don't get into these um, situations again. And, and I got sent up to Soledad State Prison in Northern California, Central California in the valley and I just was freaked out um, but one of the most depressing rides of my life was sitting on this big um, prison bus 
you're chained and shackled and you're chained to the person next to you and they got the radio on and you're looking at all these people um, who are what we call civilians mm-hmm. enjoying their life free and then we got up to like Ventura and we stopped and the cops got off and got their Mexican food and, and you become very aware that you are this and they are that, that and I just remember coming into Monterey County where I lived with my ex-wife and kids coming into Monterey County and it, was, it was like a John Steinbeck moment because it was dreary and cloudy mm. and, and then they pull into this prison and um, so um, I could talk to you days about prison stories but um, you know, prison is not supposed to be a nice place. Uh, it was that they, you, you get carbohydrate-laden food. You, you get low protein. You very rarely get fresh vegetables, even though you're in the slimmest valley. And you can look over the fence of the prison and see spinach and broccoli. Um, uh, but uh, uh, I tried to use that time to better myself. I had 70 books in my cell, and you're only supposed to have five. Um, I, I got a TV, I, I, I got a TV because in order to buy stuff, um, you had to wait for like about three months, so I bought a, I, you know, it was illegal, but I got a TV and I got a radio and I got headsets on it and I'm reading books, so I, basically, and I, and I had a job where I taught GED to some of the 17, 16 year old prisoners mm-hmm. and uh, I mean they were learning fourth grade skills, like Wow. Decim- decimals and stuff like that and um, and so uh, I already worked in the afternoon which is great because you can't get good time unless you have a job right gotta have a job and so I wanted to get out and so um, yeah um, I you know I wrote a lot of letters and um, but I every morning I'd go out and I'd run you know, 10, 20 miles a day. I would join the Mexican guys on the yard that had like a Bible study. And even though they were kind of hardcore, uh, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, really to the right, I, I hung out with them because it was better than not. Mm-hmm. I used to walk with this one guy that was had murdered a couple people in a real estate office uh, in Newport Beach, and. Uh, I had to quit walking with him because he had come down from Corcoran, which is a level four maximum, and we were a level three maximum. And he would talk to me, and then he would tell you, you know, Mike, you're going to be in here on the installment plan. You know, they're going to put someone in your cell with you, and you're going to get in a fight, and they're going to give you another charge, and you're going to be in here on the installment plan. Oh my gosh. And I finally, and then he, he hated blacks, he hated Jews, he wanted to kill. He said, I like Corcoran. He goes, I like fighting on the yard. He's a big guy, like six foot three. And I, I finally said to him, I said, you know what? I can't hang around you anymore. <laughs> yeah. I said, you're so damn depressing. I said, I don't, I don't know what your purpose is, except you, you have nothing left in life because you killed two people. I said, you have nothing left but try to destroy other people. And I said, I'm, I'm so I quit seeing him. So, um, and, uh, you know, I put in for, uh, to be moved back to North Carolina post-prison. They told me that very rarely happened. So I had some of my family members start writing letters. Mm-hmm. So they pulled me down in the basement one night. And I'd, I'd been jacked up and had my shoulders 
really ruined uh, when I was in county jail um, years earlier. And so they pulled me down there and I had like three of them, captain, lieutenant, other guy. And I thought they were gonna you know, screw me up, but the guy was asking me, why, why do you have so many people uh, writing my counselor? I said, how many people have written? And he goes, three. I said, really? <laughs> I said, you know how many kids are in my family? I said, you know how many, you know how many nephews and nieces and all kinds of people, friends? I said, I could have 200 letters to you. Yeah. I said, I said, what that means is, is that they're interested in how, um, how I'm treated here and that I get out of here alive. I said, for instance, I saw a guy the other night. He had uh, some sort of breathing problem and his, room, his cellmate tried to help him and the guards told him to get off and medical didn't get down there in time and medical's just not very far away. And I said, the guy died. I said, if that happens to me, what those letters mean is there's going to be people holding you accountable. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I got out of prison and I had, um, even when I was leaving, uh, the girl says, uh, you got to go to San Diego. I said, no. I said, the counselor already said I can go straight to Charlotte. She goes, you better get on that bus San Diego or you're going to be back right out in here on a new charge. And um, so I had to take the bus towards San Diego. And when we got off San Luis Obispo, I called the guy and I'd call him by, you know, back then we didn't have cell phones. So I call I called the guy, a probation officer in San Diego, parole officer, and he said, no, you can, you can go to Charlotte, but it, it cost me a half day. So, And the reason I, my, bro, my brother John, what uh, he, he either did know or didn't try to find my, um, my license. Uh, and you can't get on an airplane without a license. Right. So um, I, I, I took a bus for three and a half days. Oh, that was fun. And, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Um, and I came back here and, you know, I spent the next um, five years working what someone called crappy jobs, you know. I, I, I worked for a couple of days at the Sharon Amity um, graveyard digging flower pot holes. Oh, wow, and, yeah. Uh, and I was, uh, I did this all day. I, I filled up soda machines and... Yeah, all that concession machines. I did that for a while, and then I ran a, a storage facility, and I became district manager. But and then I became manager, played in sports. That uh, was a, a working manager. That's like that was ten bucks an hour, and sometimes you would load like twenty thousand pounds of weight off of a truck in the middle of oh my a ninety-nine degree day, <laughs> and then. Yeah, I did everything. I, well, it wasn't a bad job. I mean, um, some of these jobs taught me some good skills, negotiation, uh, management skills. I ran a bakery cafe in Pineville. Actually, it was a very good job. Everybody loved their stuff. Um, and the last job I had prior to getting back into professional life was I ran a, um, I ran a subway. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, so I learned all the ins and outs of Subway and um, and, and managing 16-year-olds <laughs> and not getting to church for like a month in a row because the Sunday opener didn't show up. You know? Oh, gosh. Uh, that kind of thing. But um, I during those five years, um, 
Well, I had this girlfriend, um, and not a good influence in my life, but she did find out about this depression, bipolar, sport lines, uh group in Charlotte, and, and so I went there one time, and she was kind of flirt with one of the guys. I said, okay, you, you don't need to come to this anymore. <laughs> um, so I started going, and that was when I was working at that uh, place over in Pineville, the bakery and cafe, and we got done, we closed, I think, seven, and this thing started at seven, so I would have to close and then just rush over there, mm-hmm. just shove all of us the money into the safe, go to this thing, and then drive back over there and, and finish out. Um, and I got, you know, they had a, a good enough people, but it was really a downer, and um, uh, there was one time where I didn't get to speak, and I, very typical of me at the time, I just raised my mind, I said, when am I going to get the talk? Is there a better way of doing this? Can we divide this up into two groups? Um, <laughs> you know, typical teacher. And so after a while, after I've been there about four months, uh, they said, okay, we're going to, we're going to, uh, someone decide, we're going to decide whether it's going to be Mike or these three other people are going to run this group from now on. Well, the first person, she had so, such stupid ideas, they got rid of her quick. Uh, the next woman said, I, I, I just can't handle the difficulty here. I can't handle the complaining. And uh, I don't want to third one. So basically, I became the leader of this group. And um, I got us back. We were attached to DBSA at the time, so I got us back, attached back with DBSA. Um, you know, got an executive committee, started training people to facilitate, so it didn't have to be the same person all the time. Uh, started four more groups. Wow. Um, and and the Tuesday night group, which was the original group, grew so big. We had to move it from one church to another. It had fifty-five people on a Tuesday night. Wow. And so I would separate it into four or five groups. Yeah. And um, then um, it was, so I, I'd been doing that for four, at least four years. And this group out of uh, Mental Health Association Greensboro called me and said, we'd like to come down. We hear you've got some good groups down there. And I said, sure, come on down. So they came on down. And then they wanted to do a training of facilitators with us. So um, I just put together a training manual using DBSA stuff and my own stuff and then we did a training with them and then they asked us if uh, while well, later they asked if we would come up uh, so I used my brother John's van and took some people up to Greensboro and, the, and Kate Gaston who was the executive director there she said to me at lunchtime she goes oh, I want to hire you and I go you know yeah 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 yeah, yeah. You, know, you know when you're at that point in your life mm-hmm. you just don't believe anything I'm right and um but then uh, I, I quit my, I just quit my job at Subway. I just quit. And um, I said, you know, I'm not looking for a job for the rest of this month. I'm not going to go on these sites. I'm just, I'm just going to chill for a couple weeks. And then I got a call from her, and I went up. And uh, they took me to this really nice restaurant, her and the assistant director. And I knew I had a job because you don't, you don't take every job applicant to a nice restaurant. <laughs> And uh, she said, you know, you're, she, you know, hired me and she said, you know, your, you know, your criminal history looks pretty much like uh, a gradual that you started taking responsibility for your life, Mike. And she goes, so I don't want you to be concerned about that. And um, she goes, I do have one question. What's this littering charge for? <laughs> I, I was helping my brother John take stuff out of his shop in his truck 
and one piece of carpet fell off the truck and there was a sheriff behind me. Oh my gosh. And John comes up there and he starts getting, I said, John, go back to shop. And, but we ended up having to pay. So anyway, I had to go to court, but. Um, oh gosh. So MHA is where it all started, uh, where Kate Gaston gave me the chance. Mm -hmm. uh, she believed in me. Um, I, I'm very thankful to people like her mm -hmm. and I, I worked there for two years, um, did a lot of good stuff, started, started our first peer support program there. And in, uh, in about November of that year, she says, Mike, um, I need you to go to this class for two weeks and it's about, it's about peer support. And I said, what's that? And, and, and she, <laughs> I said, I can't take two weeks off. I got too much stuff to do. <laughs> she goes, why are you going to go? So I, so I went to this class and it was run by what became later Recovery Innovations, and um, it really um, it changed my life. Mm -hmm. uh, I had, I really didn't have word, heard the word recovery in relation to mental illness. I I didn't hear a lot of the stuff that I heard those two weeks, and uh, a new way of looking at things from more of a strength base rather than oh, you're you're screwed up because you've got this bipolar thing. Um, but it was more about addressing all. All, it was more about, you know, people's hopes and dreams mm -hmm. rather than how screwed up they were. Right. Um, although I've always known the barriers internally that I have. Um, so that was a new thing for me, and we started a peer support program. I started at the, uh, the shelter there. Mm -hmm. So I had two people working there at the shelter. Um, they were mostly navigating people helping people navigate, but um, they also, you know, you, know, you got to promote hope. Mm -hmm. um, when people people living in a shelter, they're probably not feeling a lot of it. Right. And empowerment that they can, that, you know, the idea that life can get better mm -hmm. doesn't have to remain the same. And so from there, um, a guy that was at the Guilford Center, which was a county mental health Paul Evans, he came to me, we were having lunch, and he said, I'm, I'm starting a new chapter of Recovery Innovations, and um, he goes, I'd like you to come on as, uh, as, as the first educator, and you know, you'll probably fill in for me at a lot of places, uh, just you won't have the nomenclature. So I, I did that. Um, I worked with Recovery Innovations for a couple of years, and um, I learned a lot uh, through that situation. Went out to Phoenix and took their advanced uh, level facilitation training and met some good people. And um, so from there, I've had uh, some clinical jobs where mm -hmm. I've been in, been in charge of uh, I was director of operations for this company that had an ACT team, a sort of community treatment team, and a community support team. Um, I also I was director of a day treatment program in Reedsville, North Carolina, and that's a, basically a school for kids who are having uh, mental health mm -hmm. issues. But often it's, it's, it's a combination of kids. It's not a great combination. It's, it's kids that are having behavioral issues who are basically um, headed towards the justice system. Mm -hmm. And then you have the kids who just basically you know, have the mental health issues. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, we had 18 kids when I got there. I doubled it, and um, I, I, I had people from the community come in. They said, "You can't, you can't have, uh, you can't have uh, assemblies here." Mm-hmm. I said, "Why not?" So we had assemblies. I brought in football players and singers and musicians and stuff, yeah. and people that had their own history when they were young. They had been in foster homes and things like that. Talk to the kids and. I trained the staff on, hey, just because you've lived in Reedsville all your life and you know these kids, we can't, we can't do this prediction that their lives are going to be crap. Right. We've got to have a prediction that they can, that no, they don't have to be like their family was. I said, mm-hmm. but some of the kids were in a pretty um, dire situation, but I also had to deal with um, people running um, group homes mm-hmm. that had I mean, I'd go to meetings and like eight people would talk about the kid before I'd get there. And I said, okay, have we talked about the problem enough? I said, the kid's already run out of the room crying. So I said, how is that therapeutic or beneficial to this right. teenager? I said, all right. So I had to deal with a lot of that. And um, then I, uh, I moved back to Charlotte. I worked for a, a peer-run organization for a while writing writing curriculum and then um, then I uh, had this opportunity my friend Paul had taken over MHA in Greensboro and he heard about this job in Rocky Mount Rocky Mount is one of the 10 10 most impoverished cities in the United States so I didn't know that but I had a girlfriend at the time who lived over in Washington North Carolina which is way over there and about an hour from Rocky Mount so um, I went down there for the interview, and as I drove into town, it's just like shuttered buildings, and then I had to go find a soda before I interviewed her, and, and, and she goes, do you want this, right? I, I, I suppose where there's a lot of need, there's a lot of opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, I, awesome. so I did that for two years, and um, we, uh, we did some really good things uh, in that community, and then um, we, we got an award at this uh, big conference in Pinehurst one year and then I ran into this woman that was with Cardinal Innovations Healthcare which is an MCO and um, I wanted to get back over to Charlotte you know because you know my brother was over here John's over here and uh, mm-hmm. and I was kind of um, you know Rocky Mount was a hard place to live in and so I uh, got a job with uh, Cardinal innovations and I'm glad that I got that job I mean it's for a very clinical organization but at the time that I was there they hired a lot of people with peer support specialists to run the consumer affairs department I I pretty much did all the peer support facilitation training wrap facilitation training mm-hmm. but we also took calls from people we went out to see people at that time I don't know if they still do and um, I had an opportunity to uh, be involved in conferences and trainings and um, uh, I learned a lot about the industry of managed care mm-hmm. which I think is important um, because a lot of peer support right now is in those areas being managed through those areas mm-hmm. and so um, and then I, I worked one year after that for a, a prevention 
company in Charlotte, and I'm really glad that I did that because I didn't understand how important that prevention is, not, not, not just in the drug field, but primarily in the drug field, but, you know, we, we want to prevent people, you know, recovery, we prevent people from having worse episodes. Because every episode that you have that's a downer, um, you know, kind of imprints itself on, on your brain, you know. And so um, prevention, it was one year of prevention. And while I was doing that, I was on, I was the co-chair of INAPS, International Associated Peer Specialist. I'd been the secretary, started 2014, been on NAMI board for six years. And while I was on the NAMI board, I looked for an opportunity that more fit, fit me and as INAPS. I was kind of disorganized when I started out and um, I came on board and we got an executive committee, started getting more organized and then I became the co-chair for a couple of years and um, <clears throat> we were having a meeting I think in April of 2018 and they said, um, Mike, have you ever thought about being the executive director? And I said, well, no. I said, I've been kind of busy looking for, looking for one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, so I talked to the uh, personnel committee and, and, and talked to the whole board, and, and so they hired me. And so, um, you know, INAPS is, um, is an organization that um, was started by a lawyer who had an illness in, in Michigan, Steve, <sighs> where am I thinking, Steve Harrington. And he was very ambitious, and uh, so it was 2004. Um, Done some good things back in 2000, uh, uh, 2008, so we started this recovery to practice. So we had a recovery um, curriculum for psychiatrists, psychologists, social work, nurses, addiction specialists, and peer support specialists. And then in 2013, we developed uh, 12 principles of peer support with mm -hmm. SAMHSA, and that has been widely used. Um, we'll probably take another look at that see about whether we want to revamp that next year. Um, this year we're working on the national guidelines for supervision of peers mm -hmm. because that's all over the place. I mean, some states have a really good handle on it. And so we know that the environment that peers, peer support specialists go into is very important to, to their success. And a big part of that environment is, is the supervisor. Right, right. Um, but we are the, the guild or the association that represents peer support specialists in the United States. Our only goal, I mean, we can't, we can't take on all the ills of the world, you right. know. We can't take on Black Lives Matter. We can't take on shootings. We can't take on poverty. We address some of that stuff in some of our workshops and webinars mm -hmm. and stuff. But our primary goal is to make it so peer support specialists who have come many times out of a poverty background and have been marginalized uh, to try to make it so in the United States around the world that peer support is, I wrote a thing on what is the value of peer support. Well, if people really value peer support, mm -hmm. they say, well, you know, we really have a lot different outcomes than we did prior to 2000. Mm -hmm. when, back in 1986, there was no talk about getting better. 
it was like stabilization, which is important. Mm-hmm. Stabilization is important because you can't, you can't get better if you don't stabilize. But right. there was no talk about recovery. And there was, there was, it was not optimistic. It was not hope, filled with hope. Um, uh, forget about respect. But anyway, so our goal is to make sure that peer support is um, fully included across all healthcare and other mm-hmm. organizations. That's our mission statement. Our vision statement is that anyone who desires the mutuality of a compassionate peer support relationship can have one and they're in their community. Mm-hmm. The problem right now is there's a lot of rural communities you can't get. There's people in the cities. I know a guy from New York City. He's been waiting for six months. He can't oh, get wow. peer support. So we want people to be able to be, have access to it, but we want the peer support specialists themselves to have a decent life, mm-hmm. you know? And that we've talked to some people from Medicaid, it's like, no, it's not about the letters next to the name. Mm-hmm. Although a lot of peer support specialists have bachelors and advanced degrees and mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. It's about the lived experience of that person that's so valuable. I've been living with this, quote, mental illness, some people don't like the word, but it's okay with me. Um, since 26, 27, and I'm 61 now. That's a lot of years of practical knowledge mm-hmm. that people can relate to. When I was at the MCO, if I was talking to someone on the phone, sometimes I would mention that I had lived experience, and sometimes I wouldn't. But mm-hmm. if I did, they would go, oh, you've experienced this too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was similar. I, I, guess, you know, I can't say it's exact, but... Yeah, I, I know. I know how it is to try to find what you want, you know, and uh, so. I mean, that, it, right now I'm a social worker and I work in healthcare, specifically in dialysis, so it's a different setting, but peer support is very important in that, and I always tell my patients, and I think it's just as important with mental health, that you know, I can tell you what I see other patients going through. I can tell you what I've read about and what I know, but I can't tell you what that experience is like because I haven't been there. And like you said, there's no matter what the letters behind my name are, it's a different kind of relationship with peer support when somebody really understands where you're coming from. Yeah, you know, Albert Schweitzer says, you know, uh, sometimes I'm a, this is a bastardized quote, but uh, sometimes our, our light goes out and we need someone to blow it back into existence. Mm-hmm. And then Thomas Jefferson, okay, I'm going to make a historical, um, whatever, I know he was a slave owner, I know he slept with slaves, okay, but he had a really good quote and he said, um, uh, uh, Basically, it's that no one can um, bind up the wounds of another unless he has felt those same wounds himself. Mm-hmm. And um, there, I mean, but there, there are there are a lot of exceptional social workers and counselors that can really empathize and have a, almost an exact understanding of what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue is historically there hasn't been there's been too few of those, right? And so, technically, I don't know why the peer support recovery movement had to start. If, yeah. uh, if things had been doing, 
if they'd been uh, showing respect and hope and optimism and <laughs> and saying, well, yeah, 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 you can get it. No, you're broken. You're broken like to the heel. Um, physical health um, peer support is entering into. Now, for a while, they've had diabetes educators, cancer mm -hmm. educators, but now um, I've trained several people who went into diabetes education, um, sickle cell anemia. Oh, wow. And uh, I've been talking to uh, head of peer support at, at the Mental Health America, and, uh, you know, we're trying to uh, get together to, I mean, we feel like we need to approach Medicaid um, because the amount of peer support that's in peer-run organizations mm -hmm. is, I don't, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's not as much as it used to be. Mm -hmm. And because, all, I mean, the money's going to Medicaid. Right. And so, um, and the Medicaid definitions, uh, I was looking at the one that's being proposed for North Carolina. Uh, so it used to be like 20 hours a week were allowable if the person needed it. Mm-hmm. And now it's going to go down to less than five. Oh my gosh! So, but you know, it's obviously a cost-cutting measure. But I think it's also probably it's probably a result of organizations routinely writing authorizations for twenty hours. Mm -hmm. how, how many how many people need twenty hours of anything right. in their life? I mean, most people don't even have 20 hours with their girlfriend or boyfriend or mm -hmm. husband. <laughs> yeah, they can't stand it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, I think it would be reasonable if, if they uh, permitted up to about 10 hours. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's reasonable. Um, I mean, people who are in crisis need more. And, um, but I, I would think that a lot of people would do fine on mm -hmm. five hours a week. Right, crisis the, is one thing, and then there's the maintenance phase. But the other thing I like to emphasize to people, even to peer-run organizations, that peer support is a specialty. Mm -hmm. It is not the entire ball of wax. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of peers don't like psychiatry. Some want out outlaw psychiatry. Oh, goodness. Um, but people have that choice to go to psychiatry. They have the choice to go to therapy. Mm -hmm. Therapy, you know, I, you know, I trained a lot of... I trained a lot of um, peer support groups, and I, a couple of times in a row, I had like all black guys. I said, what, what is it with you guys? How can you like therapy? And they said, well, that's white people, that's rich white people stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, but therapy, you know, I've gone into utilization management meetings at the MCO and told them, hey, I can help this woman, but she needs a therapist too. Mm -hmm. and, and, and therapy costs money. Mm -hmm. And so these, you, these MCOs are trying to... Um, Stay under budget, right? Make money. They they need to make money. The problem with peer support is the uh, the quarter hour rate with Medicaid is so small. Mm -hmm. Is that if you run a peer support company, you've got to have something else besides peer support if you're gonna make it. And, mm -hmm. and otherwise, the way you're gonna make it is you're not gonna pay your people very many wages. You're not gonna reimburse. Their mileage. There's a lot of companies that don't even reimburse their mileage. Wow. Uh, they don't get insurance. So some of these people come out of a uh, situation at SSI. They mm -hmm. take a peer support class. Oh, they're, they're thrilled. Opportunity. They step off of SSI or they're doing a trial period. And they find out, boy, if I stay doing this, I'm going to go right back to poverty. Mm -hmm. And so... 
not only do we want peer support to expand, we, we want it to expand in quality. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not good enough to expand. So, I mean, um, one of our board members was at a meeting at so some hospitals a couple weeks ago, and they were talking about peer support. I said, oh, peer support's great, and all this stuff. And so this uh, person is, you know, she's got a lot of guests, and she stands up and she goes, so all you guys say you like peer support. So how many of you have a peer support specialist on your staff? Zero. Mm -hmm. So we've come, we've kind of, we've come a long ways. Mm -hmm. In 2005, uh, SAMHSA said, recovery will happen when people are surrounded by uh, an unlimited number of possibilities of recovery. Mm -hmm. Well, today we've got 25 to 27,000 evidences of recovery mm -hmm. in the United States. That is the goal of peer support. It's not just to slightly improve. It is to stabilize, but to go beyond that and to have a life like anybody else in the community, fully included, mm -hmm. uh, going to church, have families, um, recreation, etc. Having enough money so they have a decent place to live, uh, not living in substandard conditions. And um, so that's, that's where we're about. I think that's it. In my mind, I'm thinking some of the mission of social work is to focus on empowerment and focusing on people's strengths as opposed to their deficits. Because like you were saying, so much of mental health has been focusing on people's deficits. Yes. And how do you see the possibilities of your future life if you're only talking about the things that you don't have or that you can't do? And I know I talked about this um, on our last episode, but I remember I was hospitalized for mental health um, when I was 18. And I remember going into the hospital and I was like, well, I guess this is the person that I am now. I, you know, have a breakdown. I go to the hospital and this will just be the cycle of my life. And for a while things seemed really unstable, but it took a psychiatrist because um, that's the only person I was seeing it at the time. I was like, I just need to get my medicine. Um, but she really had, I think, a strength-based perspective. And without somebody reminding me of these positive things, it would, I don't know if I would be where I am today. Yeah, I think, um, it's funny, 2000, I think it's 2006 or seven, Mental Health America, then it was Mental Health Association, um, conference in DC, I spoke um, on peer support and it was to an audience that was kind of split, peer support specialists and licensed clinical social workers. Mm -hmm. And so what was interesting about that was there was a lot of commonality there. Mm -hmm. And really the only major differences was is that peer support um, share their story. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a little difference in ethics around that. Exactly. But um, that was that was an interesting uh, that was an interesting audience. I, I I don't know how it came. It was half peer support specialists and half yeah. LCSWs. But that's that's one of the things that um, we want to do is talk more, not just to peer support specialists, but to upper level management, mm -hmm. um, boards of directors, CEOs, COOs. Um, 
we really need to get to that level mm -hmm. for the commitment um, to be made. Um, and then the other thing is there's there's a lack of standards on peer support certification around the country. Mm -hmm. uh, for us, um, you know, some have 30 hours, some have 40 hours, some have 70 hours, some, mm -hmm. have, uh, some have a, a internship to have to do, and, and two states mm -hmm. have no recertification process. Yeah, wow. And so, you know, I kind of think that um, we would be stronger if that that was more um, standardized. Absolutely. But you know, the United States, the states are tricky, tricky things. Mm -hmm. you know, they, they like to do things their own way. It is. I mean, and that's hard, even with the level of care that people receive or the services they can respect from state to state and sometimes county to county, depending on what we're talking about so any I think anything you can do like you said to unify makes it stronger because you know that everybody's on the same page and I want to go back you talked about something that I think is really interesting and unique to peer support is this idea of empowering the peer supporters but they're also empowering um their peers as well so it's almost like a double benefit to both people especially like you were saying if you can get maybe reimbursement rates or things to be better for the specialist um so that they're able to have a life and a career off this and not um be struggling themselves yeah so one of the things that we want people to do as peer support specialists is day one uh begin that process of of that person uh, understanding that their life is their own and mm -hmm. they make the decisions and it's not about other people making the decisions. But obviously in some situations you're going to do more for someone mm -hmm. than in another situation. But like if someone wants you to make a phone call for them, you say, hey, why don't you make the phone call and why don't I sit in on it with mm -hmm. you? Well, let's, let's, uh, let's role play what you're going to say mm -hmm. um, and that sort of thing, you know. But uh, I was in a meeting in Nashville a couple weeks ago and they're, so this one guy from New Jersey said, "Oh, we have, we have uh, peer support case management." Huh. Oh man, I I had to raise my hand later. I said, "Where did that come from?" Right. I said, so I mean, case management. Uh, people did more for people, right, uh, than peer support special. And one of the problems is like you have HUD programs now that there's no more case managers in North Carolina, and so they have a requirement. They have to have a case manager. Mm -hmm. So when I was working at, at Cardinal, person at HUD would say, well, or Charlotte Housing, I don't know where it was. But I said, well, we need someone on this. I said, well, you can use a peer support specialist. Mm -hmm. But just be aware that the peer support specialist is going to operate a lot differently than the case manager. Exactly. So don't ask them to um, go deposit their check for them or to go get this for them. Because, right. um, I mean, there might be some transportation involved, but... It's more about this person learning to uh, to do things for themselves. Exactly. So it's like my mother, you know. I mean, I mean, when we were eight years of age, we had to iron our own clothes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, by the time we were like twelve, we had to know how to make three different meals. We had to know how to make desserts. Why? Because she didn't want to do it for us, and <laughs> right. she also realized as I get older, you guys are going to do all this yourself. Yeah. But. You know, in my where I grew up, I mean, people didn't do stuff for you. Yeah. 
And I think that's also another way that and social workers are kind of, at least since I've been in school, it's been a concept um, that, you know, we're not benefiting people at all to do things for them. We're really just teaching a reliance and it's more empowering to maybe they don't know so educate them and then like you said be a support you're not managing them like you said like a case manager you're supporting them and I think that's the value of peer support is that sometimes people just need um some support through the initial stages make sure they're on the right track and you can help them in small ways if they need it but really like that old saying like if you give a man a fish mm-hmm. or if you teach a man to fish so. that's exactly it yeah and I was reviewing some slides for this this one university we're doing a grant with and um, the, the, uh, the professor did the science had in their teach skills and Sarah teach was in there like three times and I took it out and I put facilitate the learning of skills mm-hmm. um, facilitate this I Peer support specialists don't, I mean, teachers, like, when I was a teacher, you know, the idea was I had power, mm-hmm. right? A teacher does have power in a classroom. It's a power position. Mm-hmm. Um, if it, a good teacher will do less of the power stuff and more of the facilitation of learning and getting kids involved, but it definitely has a, a power differential associated right. with it. And, and peer support, we're supposed to have that power as little as possible. Mm-hmm. We say in our 12 uh, guidelines that uh, it's equal power. I tend, that's one of the ones I want maybe to change a little bit, but because um, I don't think it's equal power when a uh, peer support specialist can uh, say to their supervisor, this person won't stop talking about killing themselves and and then he has to talk to the supervisor. Mm-hmm. I, I advise peer support specialists, don't go to the magistrate. You don't be involved with that process. Mm-hmm. You let you let the LPC, the LCW, the QP do it, mm-hmm. and then you meet the person at the hospital and provide support. Um, but Because uh, um, it kind of keeps that role sacred in yeah. that way. They haven't yeah. crossed a boundary to change the dynamics of the relationship. Yeah, that will change it altogether. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are all kinds of problems with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know... You don't see much talk about that, mm-hmm. even in peer support manuals. I wrote a manual that's being used pretty extensively in Florida, helping others heal. Um, and I can't remember. I I, I know I did uh, say in there, uh, you, you're not a lone ranger. Mm-hmm. A lot of peer support especially think, I'm out here by myself. I gotta I gotta take care of this person. Uh, um, no, you're not a lone ranger, and mm-hmm. that's why you have other staff people. Exactly. Uh, if you're concerned about something, you bring another peer support specialist. Uh, if you have, uh, you know, legal issues, bring in your supervisor. Let they're getting paid more money than you. Exactly. <laughs> that's that's in their scope of things they should be worried about. Uh, yeah, and, um, you shouldn't. At the end of the day, in a perfect world, you'll go home without the weight of the world on your shoulders mm-hmm. because it was never yours to begin with. Exactly. It was that person's. And and you can have concern for them, et cetera, but um, yeah. Do you have any questions? I feel like I've been jumping on the questions here. No, I mean, I'm just trying to 
you know, kind of get my thoughts together about it. I mean, a lot of this stuff, it's kind of funny. It, it is reminiscent of, you know, what we talked with John about mm-hmm. last when we were talking about these impoverished cities that really don't have access to care, like appropriate access to care. And then, you know, the, the people that want to help the most aren't getting the support that they need. And it's kind of, you really have to have this personality and capability to just be like, all right, you know, I'm going to be the specialist and, um, knowing that it's not going to be financially rewarding, but the same time you know you want to help people but how do we then go and create a system to support those people because there are people that are you know that's their calling that's what they're good at and that's what they want to do and how do we support that um and i was going through the website earlier just trying to to learn a little bit more about it so i see that in september you have a summit meeting is that correct we're, we're, yeah we're um i'm on the, i was asked to be on the uh, there's five people from the United States on this International Initiative on Mental Health Leadership. Mm. And so we meet in different countries. They were, we're in Sweden in May, but so we're gonna be in at Yale and we have about 21 people signed up right now. And, um, and so I think I'm gonna include that question. Uh, I talked to a professor at Yale, I think it was, was it Friday, I guess. Um, and, um, but we, we, we really, um, you know, I've talked to various organizations that we really need to have a coalition of people that will um, sign on to some sort of statement that we need to improve, make sure that all peer support specialists have a living wage. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, in parts of North Carolina, it is pathetic. I mean, it's really pathetic. I know because I get the personal stories from people that call me and talk to me, and um, and, and that's that's really kind of upsetting because you know we're talking empowerment, like you said, we're talking about not being empowered. We're talking about having some control over your life. Mm-hmm. And, well, if you're impoverished, you don't have as much control. You got you don't have money in your pocket. You don't have as much <laughs> control. When, when I had to sleep in John's uh, uh, laundry room and I had to borrow money from him and borrow a car from him. I was grateful for the things that John did, but I wasn't 100% empowered. Mm-hmm. Um, it was on the step towards going towards empowerment. So that is a, that is our job, and and I even have sometimes I even have issues trying to get board members to understand is that if we don't take care of the people that have already have been mm-hmm. certified as peer support specialists, we can't move ahead to all these people that we want to bring on board. Mm-hmm. We, so we have 40,000. If we have 40,000 and 20,000 of those are working at substandard wages, have we really made improvement? Mm-hmm. Do you think that it speaks to how we view and view mental health in this country and also how we value the people that work in the mental health community? Because I know psychiatrists maybe make a lot of money and some therapists but I think the rest of the people doing a lot of the boots on the ground kind of work aren't making money and I always wonder do people realize the the value of peer supporters no and so you know that article I wrote for a newsletter and I I also it's going to be in uh, City Voices magazine uh, uh, newspaper out of New York 
in November, but basically I said, well, what is the value of peer support? And everybody thinks they're more valuable than they really are. Every football player, I said, but when it comes to peer support, um, if we have people working in the VA, making good money, working for MCOs, making good money, working in hospitals, making so-so money, mm-hmm. and working in private organizations, getting terrible money. And I said, um, and so you can't look at a person based on the letters. I said, Medicaid looks at the reimbursement by, do you have a bachelor's degree, master's degree, doctorate? They don't look at the fact that, oh, you spent 20 years on the streets of Charlotte mm-hmm. doing all kinds of drugs and surviving being homeless like my friend Ron. And at any step of the way, you might have turned to Ron and said, you're a loser, dude. But you can't say that today because he's seven, eight years sober and he's doing tremendous things. Um, and so I think there's a little, so I, I do think stigma affects this. So mm-hmm. let's say someone is a peer support specialist and they're working in a hospital. They're with a psychiatrist, nine years education, psychologist, nine years of education, therapist, seven, eight years of education, nurse, eight, seven years of education. And this guy has social security and been on the streets for 20 years. And he became a peer support specialist like nine months ago. Mm-hmm. And so they might think, wow, he's a peer support specialist. Yeah, he just, he's just some guy who used to be on the street. What the hell does he know? Mm-hmm. Why, why, why should he be, why should he be equal to me on this team? And yet the psychiatrist saying, hey, you're the only one that can communicate with this guy. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't have you don't have any uh, medical degrees, but because you've been through this experience, you can talk. I mean, I, Ron and I used to go out together because I know the mental health. He'd, we'd talk to people, and Ron can talk to talk of whoever. And, and um, so, I, I, I think there's some stigma, and then if it's a, a person with a mental illness, they say, "Wow, geez." You know, he, he used to be in and out of hospitals, and he, and now you're going to help someone to get better. There's a little bit of stigma there. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of stare, and, and stare, stigma. I break it down, uh, you know, into some of the words that are synonyms: bad reputation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. People with a mental illness, people have a bad reputation because they did what they did, and then. You know, there's they're uh, stereotyped into this. Oh, I mean, it's, it's almost like HIV mm-hmm. uh, users who become HIV educators. It's like, you know, it's it's a stigma. It's it's, it's thinking of these people as less valuable mm-hmm. than the LCSW, than the psychologist, than the nurse or, or doctor, mm-hmm. and yet in reality. They may be the most valuable person on the team mm-hmm. because before peer support came along, we didn't have recovery outcomes. We didn't have people getting jobs, and I don't think people have to get a peer support job. I say, you know, if you, if you have mental illness, God bless you. Go get the job that you want to get. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and. Um, you know what it's whatever whatever is interesting to you. Mm-hmm. People don't 
the thing that peer support has done for people like me when I have a criminal record, I did teach at two schools with a criminal uh, felony record, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> but um, within the health world today, um, except for in, in some states, uh, it's 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 relative it's relatively a minor or moot point if you have a, uh, a criminal record. Um, and so one thing too, and it sounds like this would probably exist in a large part. They just don't know about it. Um, people transitioning out of the military, especially like who have you know served time in Iraq uh, or just any war, does this exist in capacity for them, or do you see a lot of people come in? maybe who did fight in those wars who want to become peer support specialists or are seeking one out? Is that a conversation that's happened? Well, the, the largest one group of peer support specialists in the United States is from the VA. Oh, wow. Uh, they have over 1,200 in the nation. Now, it's still not enough mm-hmm. because right. it's a big population, but I think Obama set a goal of getting 900 and we're at over 1,200, and I, you know, I talked to Dan Mazza, um, Ryan, who is the head of peer support throughout the VA system, and you know, there's, there's still issues with, um, like peer support. He's head of peer support nationally, but each location has their own rules and guidelines. We finally got some, uh, where people who are peer support specialists could. Um, be supervisors mm-hmm. within the VA, and so that that's um, so um, yeah. The it's 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 critically important uh, for people in the VA to have peer support specialists, and then uh, peer support programs are also starting in places like police departments, mm-hmm. where you know it's hard for a non-police officer. To understand what a police officer goes through, mm-hmm. so that's that's happening in law enforcement and other places. Um, I was thinking about you know you talked about your criminal record and it made it hard for you to find jobs, but I know and I think this is something that is sometimes talked about but not fully acknowledged the scale that this happens that so many people with mental illness that is either maybe untreated, not treated well, or they're not aware that they have one, do end up in the criminal justice system. And unfortunately, there's doesn't seem to be great help within the criminal justice system for people with mental health. Is peer support something that you all are offering in prisons as well? Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, starting back in like, uh, I think it was 93, Judge Leapman down in Miami, you know, Miami Dade County Jail had just horrific situation with people with mental illness in that mm-hmm. jail. And of course, it's any, it's same thing, LA County Jail, big cities, um, Rikers, um, whatever. And so, I mean, he started, um, they started uh, um, mental health courts and, mm-hmm. and they started all these courts. Uh, now, uh, I think this was, uh, the impetus was a stepping up initiative by the National County of Counties, mm-hmm. uh, which was to um, uh, 
have reentry programs mm-hmm. in, in various communities. So uh, those reentry programs may have other professionals involved, mm-hmm. but peer support specialists are, and you know, they're also being referred to as forensic peer support specialists, mm-hmm. and they get additional training. So there are a lot, uh, increasingly, um, a lot of attention being paid to um, people in jail and prison. When I was in prison. Uh, coming in, I was asked by the psychiatrist. He goes, "Why do you think you have? Why do you think you have? Do you think you have bipolar?" I said, "Yeah." He goes, "Why do you think you have bipolar?" I said, "Well, let me see. Um, well, about eleven professionals on the outside: psychiatrists, therapists, psychologists. Mm-hmm. My father had it. Five of my brothers and sisters have it." He goes, well, he goes "I don't think you have it." And um, you don't want to give me medications, and uh, yeah, it's it's a cost cutting thing mm-hmm. because you have a lot of a lot of people coming to jail faking stuff. And I said, yeah, that's your deal. I said, listen, I said, I said, you got three tiers in here. And I said, it's real easy to go up to that third tier and jump off. I said, so you tell me, is five dollars worth of lithium a month worth it or not? Right. And so I got my medication, but I mean, even going in, I got mm-hmm. that. And then I think I saw a psychologist maybe. Once or twice in two years, and that was it. They didn't have, they didn't have AA group, NA groups. This is you know the nineties, um, early nineties. So it may be different now. I don't know how it is in California, but um, it was uh, pretty stark. I mean, you could go to the Catholic um, Bible study on Saturday mornings, and I was a Catholic, but the guy was really <laughs> smart, and I would go. Yeah, it was like a breath of fresh air. I go to the, I'd go to the, I I, I kind of quit going to the Protestant Catholic chapel because I felt like the, the chaplain was all about him and wasn't about us. And, mm-hmm. But I, I had some good moments. I remember like Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving 98 where, uh, I mean, I just got to prison and had my birthday in prison and first Thanksgiving in prison and, you know, going to this, and these people and these guys sing and it was pretty amazing, 200 inmates singing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of the standard hymns. It was that... <laughs> That was pretty amazing, but I quit going to that place because the guy's sermons weren't worth the crap. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I was thinking about this the other day in comparison to my twin brother life. So we got a we got a good cohort to compare myself to. My twin brother, he mm-hmm. is bipolar. Mm-hmm. I've made about fifty percent of his income. I've worked just as hard. Mm-hmm. I made about fifty percent of the income that he's made. Um, so I think that's you know, once you, if you've committed a crime, you, you, you've uh, a lot of times you've knocked your income down, um, mm-hmm. and then um, and then you, you you you're not you're not even involved with the same level of people that you used to be. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I had shot in two thousand four bullet holes through me, and you know, I, I that would never happen if I had never been involved with this stuff. But um, so. You know, I, I see some people say, I just accept it as a blessing from the Lord. And, you know, sometimes I do. <laughs> uh, and then there's times when I'm not feeling so good, I I think it's a curse. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, I, I do feel fortunate that, um, I mean, I've had people in my corner, I've had people that have supported me. Um, I think it gets harder, and I learned this in my first peer support class in 2005, uh, 
that the anxiety and, the, and that sort of thing, every level that you go, like you go into a position that I'm in now where kind of like I'm responsible for a lot of stuff, that your anxiety is still there and you have to remember how to deal with it again. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the thing about, about my dad. I don't remember my dad being depressed. Mm -hmm. He might have been. He might have talked to my mother about it. He, he, ministers didn't go to psychiatrists or therapists back in those days. Right. Um, but I do remember him being anxious, and I remember him writing, uh, doing a lot of sermons on anxiety. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Probably felt very relevant to him. And I would say that anxiety uh, is a big part of bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't want to refer to diagnosis and stuff. Well, you know, I mean, even some medical diagnoses are kind of iffy. Mm -hmm. And this is just a group of people get together and say, well, this... This sort of thing seems to happen all the time, or a lot, right. and there's differences, but um, it certainly explains it. Um, I find that a, a majority of people in this world do not understand bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot of that is because, and I think we talked about this the other day, just generally how it's represented, like... TV shows. It's somebody TV shows are so stupid. <laughs> yeah, but and and that's people's like introduction to it. And I think especially in the South where there's not so much uh, great like education about it, especially growing up, because the only way I really learned about any of this stuff was, you know, through Gabby, like her experience with it, and then she would bring home all the books and stuff, and it's all we would hear about at dinner, and that's <laughs> that's like the only way that I learned how this stuff existed. And as time went on, you know, I kind of developed a fascination with it so i'd start researching it on my own and be like wow so this isn't like bipolar isn't you come home and you just start throwing stuff and then the next day you're just like all cheerful it's these month-long cycles of yeah. and it, it's not necessarily always to that extreme and then you know you talked about uh she kind of touched on the the prison aspect of it how many of these people are just from unfortunate circumstances where they weren't able to get the care and medication that they need and they're just not necessarily acting like how they are, but they just need help, but there's nobody there and there's no system set up. And I guess that gets into a larger conversation about, you know, how much better off would be if we can offer these services and, you know, people are getting paid the living wage to go and help these people. Just like how much of a benefit to society as a whole, you know, the government wants to hear about like how much money it's going to save or <laughs> how, how they're not going to have to spend money on it. It's like, but again, no, also jail's big business. So I think it comes down to, you know, we talk about the value of peer support. Mm -hmm. It even comes down to the value of human life. Right. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you value each human life? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I remember one day I was going over to speak to police officers. Ten years I spoke to police officers about recovery every single class. And it's a hard gig, you know, because you've got to come in there and bam, you've got to grab their attention. <laughs> but I did it for ten years and I enjoyed it. But one time I'm, I'm coming over there and I, go in, I always get some caffeine in me because it helps you be a little more alert mentally for 15, 20 minutes. So I go to this uh, 7-Eleven and there's this guy and he's just decrepit and nasty looking and all that stuff. And I didn't even take the time to say hi. Mm -hmm. I get over to this class and I'm talking and I just, I just realized, man, I just really, um, I'm a hypocrite. So I just told these guys, I said, you know what? Even sometimes I don't think people can recover. Mm -hmm. I said, I'm, I just went by a guy and just looked at him and said, whoa. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't value that person. Mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't value people in poverty 
as much as people who are doing well. Mm -hmm. um, we don't think they're worth as much. Mm -hmm. And we, we don't think people in other countries are worth as much. I can tell you why we, how we don't. Mm -hmm. When a plane crash happens in India, it's on the second or third page of the paper or mm -hmm. whatever. You know, if Dale Jr. pilot is an idiot, goes to the wrong frickin' airport, and doesn't have enough length of the runway to stop, um, we're all about Dale Jr. Mm -hmm. well, what about the hundred people that died in India or mm -hmm. Pakistan that day? Mm -hmm. And I think that's especially a problem in our culture. We're very ethnocentric here. In We're very country-centric. Yes, exactly. And we, we only care about what's happening. Well, and not even everything that's happening here. Just <laughs> things that are happening to the quote-unquote right people. Yeah. So we are running low on time, but I did want to ask you because I think it's relevant. Um, if anybody that's listening to our podcast, I am, I am a Patriots fan. You're a Patriots fan? No, that's not what I was going to ask. <laughs> oh, that's a really important thing. <laughs> no, I I disagree with you. We're Eagles fans. Oh, we, we'll give you your one championship. <laughs> <laughs> You, Chris, Chris is the Eagles fan, so I'm by association an Eagles fan. Um, but the the other important question, I guess, the second most important question, and really it's twofold. One, if anybody that we have listening is looking for um, peer support, they feel that they need it. Where could what would you recommend? their first steps to find it be and if someone is interested in being a peer support specialist in we'll say North Carolina because it sounds like it's different what would be the best way to go about that okay so if you're looking for actual peer support in any given place in the United States I would I would start the uh, there's two places to go to the um, the state website which sometimes is very confusing mm-hmm and, and, and search for peer support, mm -hmm. but also um, the county. And if it's, uh, you know, most states now are, are, are broken up into managed care mm -hmm. company areas. Um, so on the state website, you should be able to find out who that managed care company is and, mm -hmm. and go through that. Um, as far as peer support certification, um, if you, I, I, I used to have the website memorized, but if you just Google Mm -hmm. Peer support certification, in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. It will take you right to that website. Okay. And there's a 40-hour course. Uh, you you have to have a high school education. Uh, you um, once you have one year of recovery that can be attested to by a couple of witnesses, and then mm -hmm. you take uh, you take a 40-hour class, and then there's 20 hours of other classes, and then you turn that stuff in with a. I think they increased it to. Uh, went from 15 to 20 I don't know um, this year but and that 20 that 20 hours can include all kinds of things it can include first aid mm -hmm. include rap rap training it can include all kinds of things they're, mm -hmm. they're very I, I, I say liberal but they're um, they recognize that there's a lot of different classes that help with peer support okay perfect well thank you so much for speaking with us today i didn't know a lot about peer support so i appreciate you taking the time to teach us and i think it's a great thing to get out there to other people because it's very clearly valuable to the recovery of many people 
All right. You're welcome. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.